1,000 better stories. Welcome to 1,000 Better Stories, the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network's podcast sharing stories of community-led climate action in Scotland to help us all imagine a better and fairer future beyond the new normal and transform what we think is possible. one of Scan's story weavers. In today's episode, I speak to Alette Willis, one of the researchers involved in the Shifting the Narrative project funded by the British Academy and carried out by researchers at the University of Edinburgh, with Scan as a partner. The project investigated how traditional storytelling can help communities achieve place-based climate action. So right up our alley, exactly what we're interested in. Alette shares her wider experience around using narrative work to drive change in communities, along with the key findings from this recent project, ahead of the publication of the official report in October. So we've got a bit of a scoop here. We started our conversation with her introduction. Hello, listeners. I'm Alette Willis. I am a senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh, where I've been heading up a research project looking at how community-based storytelling can help to shift people, organizations, communities, and society towards reducing their carbon footprint and dealing with climate change. Um, So that's one hat I'm wearing today. And uh, actually through that, um, I have gotten involved with the Story Circle uh, for Scan itself. Right. Um, I try to ask people about their climate journeys uh, to start with, because how uh, people get to this place is so important to share and so inspiring. So would you mind sort of sharing your climate journey briefly? Um, yeah, so I, I knew you were going to ask me this, so I have been thinking about it over the last few days. Um, I mean, actually, my climate journey goes back quite a long way. I, and this is all going to date me as well. Um, I was first introduced to the issue of climate change in 1990 when uh, someone came to my secondary school in Canada to talk to us about it. So that's actually a shockingly long time ago. Um, and I do remember that person, I think they were a climate scientist of some sort, um, telling us that we had, back in 1990, we just had a decade to do something about climate change. So um, that motivated me. This was my last year of secondary school. At around the same time, my father, who's retired now, but he was a coastal engineer for the Canadian government. Um, and I know that he and his lab uh, started working on ways to protect coastlines from rising water in the face of climate change. So I also heard about it from him a bit as well. So when I left secondary school and I went on to my undergrad in university, um, I joined the board of the Ontario Public Interest Research Group and the local board at Carleton University, OPERG for short, is a student-run research, activism, social justice, environmental justice type organization and that Ralph Nader set up, you know, even before 1990, and that operates at a lot of North American universities. Um, And so 
through OPERG, I did a lot of sort of social justice and climate change work, ecofeminist work in the 1990s and into the 2000s. That was kind of the next stage. And then I actually, I have a PhD, which is how I've ended up working at a university. And my PhD is in geography. And when I started that PhD, Canada has different scales of governments. And so I was looking at climate change activism and the scale of government. So that's what I was starting to do in the 2000s. And I was, you know, going to do a kind of a political geography study of that. And I had a bunch of interviews lined up with key activists um, in Canada. And then one of the key climate change activists at the time in Toronto, who I was going to interview, um, took his life before, you know, before we were going to do the interview. And around the same time, colleague... um, at Oprah also took his own life. And that whole issue of mental health and activism and climate change kind of became more important Mm. to me to study at that time. Um, I think there's kind of this idea that that eco-anxiety is a new thing but it's it's not. <laughs> it's been around for a long time, and activists have have I think, had to deal with burnout and mental health issues and stress and all that distress for yeah. probably a very long time. That's kind of when I shifted focus from that, you know, more government activism policy focus to the more, if I can say, human. <laughs> human level of climate change and climate change activism. Wow. wow. What a powerful story. Um, yeah. Um, now on your website for your podcast, Restoring the Earth, it's a fabulous title, by the way. Absolutely love it. You say that you work with stories and people to transform the world into one where every being can thrive. Do you remember when and how you realized the power of stories to drive such change? I've always kind of had twin interests. The the one kind of that always felt more practical and was, you know, about activism and about um, what I was studying at university, what I was going to do for a livelihood, etc. And then stories. <laughs> So I love stories since I was a kid. I read tons. I was one of those kids with the flashlight under the duvet after lights out reading to Louis hours. Um, And I think even as a kid, I recognized that, you know, the books I was reading, and I was mostly reading fiction, definitely reading kind of story books that had stories to them, that these were the things that were influencing my ideas about the world and my values. And I can still think back to books in childhood that were really important to me. The very first chapter book I read in primary school was a book called Owls in the Family, which was actually a nature memoir by Canadian author Farley Mowat about when he was a kid. So it was, you know, a nature memoir written for kids and about all of the animals he rescued in his uh, house and yard in Saskatchewan. So for the longest time, that's what I wanted to do, <laughs> rescue <laughs> rescue wildlife. And then actually a lot of fantasy stories. Ursula K. Le Guin has been my hero from 
I don't know, about age 10 when I first read The Earthsea. And I, I used a quotation from her as the introduction to my PhD thesis. She used stories to explore new possibilities. And that really kind of opened up that idea for me. And yeah, and so I pursued writing alongside my more serious pursuits, <laughs> or what felt like my more serious pursuits. And by the time I started my PhD, I'd, I'd published a few science fiction stories. So I knew for myself that stories, writing them and reading them was really important to me and my values. And it was actually my PhD supervisor when I kind of came to her and said, I look, I don't want to finish this project on policy and lobbying government and blah, blah, blah. I just, I just don't want to do it. She introduced me to these ideas around narrative identity. They've been around for about a decade at that point in sociology and psychology. And that was largely because her son was studying that in social work. So she basically passed on what her son was reading in social work to me in geography. Together, we started to think through these ideas of thinking with stories and how story relates to identity and, and values and how we use stories to make ethical decisions on bigger and smaller scales. And uh, yeah, and that got me excited about my PhD again so that I could finish <laughs> on a slightly different topic than I'd started on. Brilliant. Stories to the rescue. Yes. That. That's great. <laughs> so we came together today to uh, talk uh, about findings of your project, the shifting the narrative project you, um, you referred to in your introduction, which looked into the role of storytelling in supporting communities to achieve place-based climate action. Can you elaborate on why shifting the narrative why is that important for community climate action? So I think um, one way of looking at what's going on in the world today is to see that we are dominated by what some social scientists have called meta-narratives. So we're dominated by these things that are bigger than a story, hence the word meta, and also narrative being a little more general than a story is. Um, so these are the stories about the world that have mostly Western origins and have come to dominate the globe through the West's domination of the globe. So some of those meta-narratives would be the story of progress or the narrative of progress. And there's a whole bunch of stories that kind of are attached to that meta-narrative of progress. So that being the idea that everything's always going to get better, and the West is developed, the rest of the world is not developed, everyone needs to become like the West. And so that trickles all the way down to how we understand ourselves in, as individuals as well. I think the story of what it is to be a success is very much part of that meta narrative of progress. To be a success, we should always be getting promoted, we should always be getting more money, more jobs more consumer goods, bigger house. And mm. yes, yeah, so a human should also always be progressing in that same way. Patriarchal meta-narratives as well, meta-narratives about race and about white supremacy, etc., etc. You can think of that yeah. whole tangle, yeah. meta-narratives around humans dominating the world and having the right to do whatever they want with the rest of the planet. And 
other organisms and sometimes other human beings. So those kinds of things that we sometimes don't even notice because they are like the air that we breathe. We just live within this context, especially in the West. But these meta narratives stretch out and dominate pretty much every centimeter of the planet through the impacts that the meta narratives have on people's behaviors, on corporate behavior, etc. So, um, if we see these as meta narratives, as in their ideas, they're not true in the way of basic laws mm-hmm. of physics, for example, then we can think that they're changeable then. We could tell different stories about what it is to be a human alive at this time on planet Earth. And we could get that story out there, get more people listening to that story, have that story become more common so that it feels like, at least in some places, in some communities, that's the air that we breathe in. And that would support us to living different lives and having different values. So... It's trying to challenge those big meta narratives, but usually at a community scale or an organizational scale or an interpersonal scale. So how do those big stories play out in our own lives, in our communities, and in the organizations that we're a part of? And how can we find and support other stories in becoming the dominant stories in, in our everyday lives, basically? so that we live out a story of, could be a story of harmony, um, it could be you know, a story of interdependence um, with the rest of the natural world. I mean, we called it shifting the narrative. It's a bit of a, just a catchphrase. It's probably shifting the narratives to other stories and narratives. Definitely want a plurality and a diversity of stories out there so that We've got a range of ways of understanding ourselves and our lives and deciding what we want to do. Stories and storytelling are such a wide concept. They're used by people from marketing to the film industry and your work focused on traditional storytelling. Can you tell us what it is and why do you think it may be a powerful tool to use in our communities? Yeah, so we kind of settled on that phrase, traditional storytelling, There's not really a phrase that everyone who kind of does the same thing around this area agrees on. And so we don't we don't want to, you know, be empire builders by saying you have to call it traditional storytelling. But this is kind of how we decided to phrase this. So we wanted to go to the roots of story. So, yes, there's all these different kinds of media and by which storytelling and story is is spread and a lot of those media actually have a lot more power than a performance storyteller does in that they just have, you know, more people will see a film than will hear one teller tell that story. But we want to go back to the roots of story in human society, basically. And traditional storytellers, we could also call them oral, sometimes called oral storytellers, sometimes called performance storytellers, and people who just tell a story with no or at least little other media involved, usually to uh, an immediate audience, live in person um, or live online. You know, every community used to have a storyteller, whether that was a formally 
declared role as it was and is in many societies or just so-and-so would held all the stories in the history and you could go to them and you could hear the stories. We were specifically interested in the community scale, as I know SCAN is as well. There's, there's something about the community scale that enables people to get involved and that enables communications to be directly relevant to people, I think. So we also wanted to talk to people who were working at that community scale. So community-based arts practitioners was another way that we defined this, or community-based narrative arts practitioners. Again, we, we struggled to find the right word. Um, but they're, they're the people who put on performances and workshops these days. That's, that's where traditional storytelling mostly takes place. Um, and those performances can be, you know, very formal in a theater or informal. Storytellers get invited now to be give plenaries at conferences sometimes. Of course, you probably more commonly think of storytellers in schools and libraries. And definitely the people we talked to, a lot of them did that kind of work. But a lot of them did broader work um, than that. And um, many of them worked with some of them were uh, scientists so it was that idea of the more intimate story sharing and the more basic story crafting and telling that does not depend on media just to get at stories it's not that we're against media but once you look at storytelling in a particular form of media like film or, or podcasting then you also have the technological elements you have other things that come in that we just wanted to leave out of this particular study for the sake of really narrowing down onto the, the bones of story and storytelling mm -hmm. or the foundations. Can you just tell us more about um, how you found out what you found out? We only had a very brief amount of time from a research perspective. We had a half a year, six months. So we focused on doing a two-part survey. So we identified people who worked with story in this way. So we were looking for people who'd done it for a number of years, had a chance to think about it and would be able to give us some reflections on their practice, basically. And so we sent them an initial survey and then we, we looked at their responses and then we sent another survey that asked for their reflections on some of the patterns we were seeing or for further information. And we also interviewed seven people in the UK. The four of us also attended events, workshops, performances, conferences, that sort of thing to take notes, field notes about, about those events, about looking at those events, experiencing those events live in person as researchers and looking at how we could see what was coming out of the surveys and the interviews being played out in front of us. So you mentioned uh, there were four of you. Could you maybe introduce your uh, collaborators on this? With me on this project were Arno Verhoeven, who is at the Edinburgh College of Art. He's a senior lecturer there. And um, he is a designer and he runs a sustainable design postgraduate program and is really interested in how stories play out in design. So he came to it from that perspective, and he will be presenting a paper in um, Chicago in November that feeds into sustainable design 
from what we've learned from working with storytellers. Um, and then we had two colleagues from the Moray House School of Education, Eula Hildman, who was our research fellow and did a lot of the work on the project and did all the interviews. And uh, she's particularly interested in outdoor education, which she offers a lot of training in. And um, she's recently presented on this project to an outdoor education conference. Um, and then uh, Ramsey Afifi, who's also at Moray House, and he teaches on the postgraduate teacher training program that's offered there. And so he has been taking what we've learned on this project and feeding it into teaching his students who will go on to be uh, secondary teachers in Scotland and beyond. So that's that's the four of us. I've already introduced myself and um, working on the project. So yeah, a really interesting interdisciplinary group and we've been learning from each other as well. What about the findings? What did you guys find out and were there any surprises, pleasant or otherwise? <laughs> Yeah, so um, we've done an initial analysis, but this work will be ongoing and uh, beyond the funded period. Each of us has our own particular interests, so people have all been looking at it differently. So I'll be mostly talking from my own perspective here. So we found a few interesting things that I, I would bring up here into this audience. One of the things is people are working with storytelling in a whole range of different ways, making story activism kind of interventions in pubs, bringing stories there that wouldn't necessarily normally be heard there to start off conversations. And people were performing stories, running workshops. A lot of people did storytelling outside. People were involved in training up activists and environmental scientists in their areas in how to work with story to communicate more effectively with the public. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting ways of working with story and community. I think one of the things that did surprise me was how many people do use traditional stories, and that would include things like fairy tales, for this kind of work, both with children and with adults. So I think I would have expected more of the people we talked to would be creating their own stories stories using science or telling personal stories. And there certainly were people working with those and working really well and creatively with those. But it did it did surprise me how many people were drawing on myths, fairy tales, traditional stories. Um, it surprised me at first, but I can see now, you know, those older stories often have connection to place and to animals and and plants. Um, at their heart in a way that maybe contemporary lives and contemporary stories don't have as much of. And they're also quite good at evoking wonder and awe that many storytellers thought was important to bringing about changes, shifting the narrative. So that was an interesting development. And we've compiled a list of individual stories that people have recommended, and I can share that with you. I was also quite intrigued by people characterizing storytelling events as temporary communities. I really liked that. Mm. So the idea that by holding an event where a story is told, everybody is sharing in that event. They're, they're there if it's in person. 
in their bodies with each other. And they are sharing an imaginative story experience in their minds. And this brings people together in, in quite a fundamental but brief way and the importance of this on experiencing that kind of community. Well, at the same time, there is a, an emphasis on not having too clear. This is also kind of an interesting thing from a communication perspective. Mm. Almost all storytellers, minus one of our one of the people we engage with, were adamant that a story should have some ambiguity to it, that you should never weigh a story down with a moral or with too clear a message. And that that is part of what makes story work is the ambiguity. Um, and I think that's quite different from some of the other ways we think about communicating on climate change and um, you know nature emergencies and things like that. Why do you think that's, that, that's the, what's the reason for that? Well, there's a research center in the University of California that looks at political narratives and has kind of been the, the leader in looking at the way political stories are told, not through fairy tales or things like that, but <laughs> through um, politicians' speeches, journalism, and that sort of thing. And um, so Paletta is the name of the woman, Francesca Paletta, who runs that center. And in some of the research they've done or that they cite, they look at if people feel they're being manipulated, they become distrustful of the source of the information and the, the information itself, the, the story itself, and do not get themselves immersed in the story. The more immersed a person is able to be in the story, to feel that story as a virtual experience, to empathize with the characters, to imagine themselves into those characters' situations, the place where they are, things like that. The more someone does that, the more shifts can be detected in people's way of giving meaning to their experiences and lives, and the longer those shifts hold. So wow. if there's too clear a message, then a person will fight against it and will not relax into and have that experience. It doesn't open so them, people's minds and closes people's minds. It's really interesting. Absolutely. Because with, uh, with climate messaging, there's um, generally very sort of straightforward, you must do this or these are the tips to follow or this is the situation, very clear and simple messaging. But this is a very different way of approaching um, the discussion. Yeah, and I think that straightforward messaging definitely has a place. You know, for people who are already on board, who already care, who want to know what to do, they want that clear messaging and that clear information so that they can carry out the values that they have. But in terms of actually engaging somebody's values, fortunately, I think you can't manipulate people too much <laughs> with uh, communication. Darn. <laughs> <laughs> Because the thing is, if a story is ambiguous, this came up too, you would expect that everybody would interpret it slightly differently and you'd want them to. And that again was seen as an important part of why stories are, are important to humans, communities, societies, so that they're open enough that people can think with the story. And this is a term that sociologists sometimes use around 
the field of narrative ethics, so working with stories and ethics. So people think with stories, they bring their own issues, their own questions, either consciously or subconsciously, to reading or hearing or watching a story. And then somewhere they'll be mulling over, you know, how is this relevant to what's important to me right now? And that is where the shift happens. The shift happens in the audience, in the listener. Mm. That's where the shift um, happens. I just wanted to ask you about another thing. I think that another finding you were talking about conversation as really mm -hmm. important part of this storytelling experience of creating community, of creating meaning um, as well. Yeah, so so that was the third important thing that we found um, that also connects to the others, and that was dialogue. And we had used the word discussion, and so many people we engaged with did not like the word discussion. <laughs> they wanted it to be dialogue, and um, I agree with them that dialogue is the, the more pertinent term for it. So an exchange between people. And again, we had maybe thought that the discussion would be about the story, but storytellers were clear with us. They had clear messaging on this. <laughs> that it's actually an exchange between the listeners and the teller. And this was valued by most, most of the storytellers that were working in this area really valued that everybody valued this. Most of them were working with it in quite formal ways. So some people pointed out that actually a live storytelling session is always a dialogue. So the storyteller who is present in some way with the audience will be paying attention to the audience's responses. Again, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes consciously. And that will change the way the story is told. Because all of these storytellers work improvisationally to a certain extent. So they're not memorizing a script and saying the script. They're telling a story. So the story will be told slightly differently every time it's told. It will have a framework that is the same from time to time, but the telling will always be different. So that is dialogical in itself. And for many storytellers, that's what they do. They, they focus on the performance. Others integrate other things and understand some of what happens at a performance as dialogue as well. So if you go to a storytelling performance before it starts, usually the storyteller will engage the audience. It's not like a formal theater, you know, where there's that, that invisible wall between what's going on in the stage and the audience. The storyteller is there with the audience and they'll ask the audience questions. And again, that will be part of the dialogue and that will shape the telling. But again, a lot of storytellers actively encourage a dialogue after the storytelling event. So whether that storytelling event's part of a workshop or is a performance, there'll be an opportunity for audience members to respond to what they've heard. And some of the people we talked with will structure that in various ways. So give the audience an opportunity to reflect more deeply on their own lives in relation to the story through questions or somatic exercises with the body or visualizations, and then open up a dialogue, not about what is the story about, because we said we don't want a clear message. We don't want to come to, we don't want to shrink the story back down. But what did people get out of the story? What did, what came up for them when they heard the story? You know, um, if it was a story about trees, a storyteller might start the session just by asking people, you know, what's your favorite tree? Did you have a tree you used to climb in childhood? 
tell the story about the tree. And then after the story, just continue that conversation, that dialogue about trees and why people feel attached to care about them and things like that. Mm. So again, the, the thought was that the shifting is, is maybe started with the story with people unconsciously processing questions, issues, their own lives, their own experiences in relation to this new story they're hearing, but then can be brought out further by deepening people's engagement between their lives and the story. And then also connecting each other through sharing their personal stories, basically at this point. Um, mm. And further creating that community that holds a particular way of valuing story, valuing people and, and valuing the connections, the interdependence that is in the story that was told. Traditional storytelling, it makes me think of fairy tales and old legends. And you said that a lot of people are still using those. Can you give an example of how Scottish storytelling traditions, which are quite strong, I think, um, are still relevant to here and now and to these issues? Yeah, so um, Scotland is actually quite lucky in sort of Western societies that um, storytelling was kept alive as a traditional art form through rapid urbanization and modernization um, in a way that didn't happen necessarily in other European countries. So storytelling you know, is alive and well in Scotland and Traditional stories, old stories from Scotland are still told quite regularly at the Scottish Storytelling Centre um, and elsewhere. So there's a lot more support for traditional storytelling and for maintaining those connections to oral cultures. The Scottish travellers deserve much of the credit and they kept these stories alive and going and still do. There's still some some Scottish travelers, such as Jess Smith, who are telling today, who come from that oral tradition directly, and so are, are telling stories that they learned from hearing somebody else tell a story, rather than telling stories they've learned from a book. So we're really fortunate in Scotland that we have those traditions still alive and still accessible. There's something that is talked about in various parts of it, the academy and elsewhere called traditional knowledge. So the idea of that those cultures that proceed and indeed li still live alongside Western culture have their own set of knowledge. Much of it might be useful to the, to the whole world these days in terms of how we can live with a smaller carbon footprint. Um, sometimes it's called traditional ecological knowledge. So keeping those old stories alive, not only do they carry certain carry values of interdependence in a way that maybe contemporary stories don't, but many of them actually also contain uh, information on, for example, how old heather brooms used to be made. There's a, a story um, in the book that I put together with Alison Galbraith that tells Archie's besom. And as part of the story, traditional broom is made so there's actual you know there's that kind of knowledge in those stories as well as the carrying of values so i mean a lot of stories and fairy tales do come from all over the world and from traditional 
uh, indigenous cultures as well. So how can they be used? Are they relevant? And are they sort of issues maybe of cultural misappropriation around those? Because that, that could be maybe seen like that. Yeah. A lot of the storytelling revival that took place in the UK and also in Canada and um, came about sort of in the 60s and 70s where there was you know, a real strong impetus towards um, multiculturalism and, you know, for the best of reasons, wanting to share and expose people and children particularly to to a whole range of diverse cultures, etc. So actually a lot of the storytelling books, collections out there that are to do specifically with nature and the environment tend to be collections of stories from all over the world and rarely from traditions from Western cultures, if you like. And that has raised issues, particularly discussions around colonialism and appropriation, as you were mentioning. And again, within this community, there's not really a consensus. There's a broad range of opinion on this and of ways of working with stories. Everybody, of course, agrees that if you work with a story from another culture, you do so as respectfully as possible. The bottom line being you share the source. Where did the story come from? Who are the people that held this story? How was that story collected? So if you can find out something about how that particular collection came to have that story in it, that can be an important consideration to make. Some cultures are quite happy for their stories to be shared. Once they've told the story, they believe it's out there in the world and others who've heard it are free to share it. The Scottish travelers take that perspective for the most part. Um, other cultures often that have experienced the real brunt of empire, of colonialism and neocolonialism are understandably not wanting other cultures to share their stories indiscriminately. There's also kind of this international level of storyteller, of storytellers that are tell all over the world and are quite well known internationally. And they often have connections and have gifted each other stories from their own cultures. So they've got that personal, interpersonal relationship to the people and the cultures that they've got the stories from. Um, but yes, that can be quite a controversial subject. That was probably the most controversial subject that our study um, engaged with. There are many good reasons why people share stories from other cultures. You know, so it might be the only way that that particular community is going to get exposed to other cultures and to just tell stories from within that community could risk kind of insularity, stagnation. Best case scenario, somebody from another culture comes and shares a story with you. Yeah, I don't know if I should say diverse storytellers to your community. Yes, yes. You can't always do that, but that's a no. That's a good but you, I mean, this is where medium to, yeah. media does come in. There's a lot of storytellers have their own YouTube sites. So if you're interested in stories from a particular culture, you can go onto YouTube and you can find people from that culture telling those stories. I'd like to ask you about the responses you got to one of the questions you asked the storytellers. You asked them to imagine that they had all the support they needed and and you asked them to tell you uh, what would be the project they'd like to undertake 
to aid a group, organization or community to shift their narratives towards more sustainable ways of living. Can you maybe point out a few responses to that? What, what, what were there? Yeah, I'm glad we asked that question because we got really interesting responses to it. I think one thing that came out quite clearly was how these, what we've been calling traditional storytellers, work in a range of media. So there's lots of ideas about sort of crossing from that performance storytelling to making videos with kids collaboratively that animations that would um, illustrate the story being told and people wanting to put things in books even a couple of podcasts and things like that so a lot of the the projects were really about connecting to place and I know you have an interest strong interest in that as well Um, So there are different ideas about connecting to place. One that sticks in my memory was this idea of integrating conservation of hedgerows with stories and art so that it's not just about conserving a hedgerow, but kind of culturally and narratively reconnecting the community to that hedgerow and to the idea of hedgerows as part of uh, a healthy, happy community and landscape. There was somebody who had the dream of being a storyteller in residence to a community for a year and for that then to pass on so that there's always a storyteller in residence who does all of this sort of thing. And it could be a storyteller in residence to a community or to a forest or to a lock, or, uh, but somebody who holds those stories, who develops the stories, who shares the stories, and then passes on to the next person. There are a couple of proposals that were kind of national in scale. So although a national network of community-based storytellers that all connect and and work together. There was plans for festivals and yeah, lots of lots of people wanting to get storytellers together and then disperse into the world carrying those stories and those ideas and those practices. Storyteller in the residence. I'm imagining a cave or a like a little hut somewhere in the middle of the forest, and and anybody can come and get a story of place or gift a story of place as well. And I, I love that idea. I'm, I'm grabbing that one for Tensmuir and for Taper. <laughs> <laughs> Just find some money first. You already talked about how your collaborators will be using the learnings from the research in the immediate future. What are you going to do with all these uh, findings? And is there more to come on this topic? I think we will we'll keep looking at what people told us. We'll keep deepening the analysis, connecting that analysis to different areas of work. As I mentioned before, we have a few specific things. So the report that we gave to the British Academy, which is was our funder, thank you to the British Academy for funding us. Um, the report will be released by them in October. So they have an embargo on it right now. We can share the report um, broadly until that time. So that will be available for people to look at. We are going to be doing a workshop as part of the Scottish International Storytelling Festival. The workshop will be online as part of their global global labs. So if you want to spend a whole afternoon exploring these ideas on, in a hands-on way, I won't just be talking. We won't just be talking. We'll, we'll be doing some 
some practical exercises, experiential things. The last Tuesday in October, we will be doing that. And you can sign up for that through the Scottish International Storytelling Festival. My last and final question, which I ask of everybody, I would like your personal view on what you think the role of communities is in driving the necessary change towards the fairer world for all. I'm very committed to the community scale, and I do think the community scale is where change is going to come from, because that is the scale at which we all live our lives. Well, the communities can be dominated and are dominated by those meta narratives that we started our whole discussion with. Communities are also where other stories can gain a foothold and some foundation and stability from which to launch out into the globe, if you like. And the philosopher Hilda Lindemann Nelson. She's an American philosopher. She's written on this. She's, she had a great interest in how we get those alternative stories out there, counter stories, she called them. And she was a believer in the community scale as being fundamental. It's it's small enough area that you can experiment with new ways of telling stories about what it is to be a human in the 21st century. It's a small enough area to live out those stories with other people and be supported in those once it's taken root at the community scale, it's harder for it to be uprooted uh, by global forces. Thanks very much for taking time to talk to me about the research. Thank you, Casca. I hope this conversation gave you a bit of a taste of how working with traditional storytelling can create change in our communities. And if you're interested in more details, the official British Academy report is coming out in October, and Alette will post updates on this and other work on her Restoring the Earth website. I popped the link to it in the episode notes for you, along with the links to all the project collaborator profiles. I also shared a link to the online workshop on shifting the narrative at the International Storytelling Festival on the 25th of October at 2pm. And if you're interested in using technology for your community place-based storytelling, you might like to join us for a Scan Stories for Change workshop on the 13th and 25th of October. Over the two mornings, we will explore practical examples of powerful place-based storytelling for change and how to use a free, easy travel app to create and share such stories. It's fun and easier than you can imagine. Link to Eventbrite booking for the workshop is in the show notes too. Or just drop us a line on stories at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk and we'll point you in the right direction. Well, that's all for now. Until next time, take care of each other out there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and maybe even a review. It will really help us reach a wider audience. If something exciting is happening in your own community, be sure to let us know so that we can help you tell your own story. Or maybe you would like to join our brand new Storyteller Collective. You can drop our story weavers a line at stories at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk. To keep up to date, check out our website at scottishcommunities.org.uk or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or simply sign up to the newsletter. Thank you.